makes you such a threat. We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Joshua. Greetings and good day and welcome my relatives. I shake your hands with a good heart. This is a voice from Earth. It's good for all of us to be here. You are listening to First Voices Radio, Antiochus and Ghost Horse, sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Esopus, or what Americans and Dutch call the Castle Mountains. Regardless, it is the highlands of the Esopus, in the lands of the Muncie-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio, and Liz Hill is the producer of First Voices Radio. Today are two guests, Charlie Lyons, a multimedia journalist, and Charlie Espinoza, who is a researcher and writer specializing in gold mining in the Amazon basin. They recently wrote an article, Mercury is a Complex Problem, a Q&A with Colombian mining minister Irene Valez Torres, Mangabay.com is where you can source the interview. The 2022 Colombian election of Gustavo Petro, a first left-wing president in decades, has fanned the winds of change throughout the country by vowing to tackle many of the nation's chronic issues, from violence and corruption in environmental problems and inclusivity. Among these are illegal extractive activities, particularly gold mining, which threaten ecosystems and indigenous communities. The administration has called for a transformation of mining regulations, formalization of small-scale operations, a general cleaning up of the industry while keeping it profitable. I interviewed Charles Lyons and Charlie Espinoza not only about the data, but the attitude underneath the general cleaning up of the industry while keeping it profitable, in which I think it's an oxymoron at best. Thank you for joining us here. It's an honor to have you both, Charles Lyons and Charlie Espinoza. And this time we're going to focus in on Colombia because I know you, Charles Lyons, talked about what was happening in in Brazil and Suriname and the mining, the gold, the energy, basically, how Native people are being affected by all of this onslaught of mining for gold, the forest for land deforestation, Agriculture, we could go on and on here, but in location where you are is in Brazil, as you are, Charles Lyon and Charlie Espinoza, you being in Southern California, and your experience of, of seeing and actually reporting on the mining, the preferential treatment 
by certain governments and you know newfound governments and dictatorial governments. And all underneath this are the peoples, the native peoples, and then the Afro-Colombians, the Afro-Ruvians. So what I'm trying to get up, the indigenous peoples have this view from the shore. Everybody else came in on the ships. So that perspective is hardly heard from. What is formulized as far as governments are concerned, whether they're puppet governments or governments of the people, and how much that is really affecting the land and the, the native peoples, even Afro-Colombians who are being told to fight against each other and as native people also are being torn apart because the land is not giving them the purity it once did. In Colombia, in this case, all that has been set up in the past through things like CAFTA, uh, AFTA, uh, in, in NAFTA, in North America, those preliminary treaties that really are in place now to displace anything, uh, Native people, anybody working on and garnering substance from the land, subsistence living. So I want to go from there. Let's start with you, Charles Lyons. Thanks so much for, for having me. It's great to be back on your show. I think it's it's an interesting parallel between a number of the countries that have just shaken off the, the yoke of brutal governments, uh, very conservative, very almost dictatorial in the case of Brazil, but also in Colombia, where these invasions of indigenous land have been allowed to flourish, have been allowed to happen for the last four years as, as strongly and as, as openly. The, border, the borders have been porous. The, the borders, the resistance has been null. And what you see in the north of Brazil, in the extreme north in Hoaima, is that thousands of Garimperos, uh, wildcat mounters, have basically now that the Lula government is in place, and this is similar to Colombia, now that the, per, the Petro government is in place, they're starting to crack down on these illegal miners, the miners that have invaded uh, indigenous territory. But they haven't sort of, in a macro sense, solved any problems. What they're doing is invading in throwing these people out. And it's not the miners' fault. In most cases, they're working for conglomerates, syndicates, crime syndicates. And they're throwing them out. And all they're doing is they're going to other countries. In the case of Brazil, they're going to Venezuela. They're going to Guyana. Uh, Guyana. In, I'm not sure where they're going in Colombia. Charlie might be able to speak to that. But the point is they're not solving the problem in a kind of global macro, macro way. And what we wrote about, what we just wrote about, was the situation in Colombia where the new government has come in and the new government is trying to figure out by broad consultation with so many stakeholders, what is the best way forward that really takes in consideration the rights of Afro-Colombians, indigenous, and, and many other groups. Charlie, I don't know if you want to pick up from there. I would just add, uh, and thank you, by the way, I feel uh, very honored to be on the show. Um, I would just add that at Columbia uh, has a history, a long history of uh, really favoring multinational companies 
um, favoring making it possible for for bigger mining companies to work in areas and, and land grab and has made it um, comparatively very difficult for you know uh, much smaller communities. Um, so this is sort of coming from a long history of of frustration and policy that favors uh, multinationals. So when both of you talk about multinationals, you know, and 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 we know in in the workings of the media that we do, and those of us who have really understand between the lines that a lot of this financing of these multinational corporations wasn't allowed until a certain time period in the, in the nineties. But who is backing them up even now that we don't hear about? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think that um, there's a couple layers to that question. One is there are, of course, investors um, who invest. A, a mining company does, you know, an exploration and and then makes an announcement that they uh, have uh, potential, you know, found potential mineral riches in an area and then investors will back these um, very large operations. I think on another level, you can think about it in terms of um, consumers and uh, and especially in the United States um, and Europe, you know, there's uh, many consumers don't know about the impacts of, of gold and other minerals when they're buying um you know, smartphones contain gold and, and jewelry as well. Uh, so they're fueling these impacts and in many cases aren't aware of it. Um, and so the, the investment is is widespread. Um, you know, you, you find European countries, uh, the U.S., um, um, in some way, stakeholders. China, for example, is very big in Latin America and in Brazil and own mines in Suriname, as we discovered in our article on Suriname. They get better deals. The multinationals get better deals. And often they deal with the, with the governments. So in the case of Guyana, as I'm soon going to explore, there's a lot of sort of looking the other way because they're concessions, they're paybacks, and unless it reaches a crisis point as it has in Brazil, where the Yanomami in the north of Brazil, extreme north state of Hawaii and also Amazonas have been invaded in the last four years. There's malnutrition, there's pollution of the rivers from mercury. Because this big business of illegal gold mining has been allowed to flourish. So how do you get control of that? And what can the Lula government do? What can the Petra government do? What can other governments do when they come in? And that was one of the fascinating things we we explored in our article in Mangabay in Colombia. What is this consultation process? How is it going to affect the individual miners? And as you saw, we spoke to one miner who felt a little unsure how he was going to benefit from this reform process. Charlie Espinoza, you talked about the layers of maybe deception. I could go that far because what I'm reading here is if the miners are skeptical and 
that they are being displaced. Really, if you can go that far with moving from Brazil to other parts of South America, they need jobs as anything else. But if you think about what these miners are actually doing under these this left-wing government of, of Gustavo Petro, what is the man behind the curtain doing now? When he came to power, he said, you all wrote that he came to power pledging to transform Colombia's mining industry. So it's just, what do you do? He's changed hands of, you know, what one sees. He doesn't really, they really don't know what they're really doing because there comes the, the skepticism. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a long uh, history from, so the, the article centered around uh, an Afro-Colombian uh, artisanal miner by the name of Carlos Latore, who he works in the Pacific region. And I think something important to understand about him and his community is that work, they're working on a very, very uh, small scale and the environmental impact is low. They're not using mercury as many other miners do. And they've been practicing that form of mining for a long time. Uh, so these communities are descendants from runaway slaves, in fact. Um, and they've basically needed to find, uh, you know, forms of subsistence and survival in the jungle uh, where they've been living for a while. So, uh, yeah, to your question, I think that he is, uh, Carlos and other miners have to be very skeptical because uh, there's um, there's laws and there's government promises and then there's actual what ends up, you know, affecting them and what actually ends up reaching their community. So Colombia is one of the the only, if I think the only Latin American country to have banned mercury in, in gold mining use. And they banned it in 2018. But um, for a lot of uh, communities that hasn't, that law hasn't really been seen in any kind of real way because they're still experience, experiencing mercury contamination. And for example, the article mentioned uh, there are a number of indigenous communities in the Colombian Amazon basically tried to sue the government, the Colombian government, because uh, they, they said, well, this mercury ban took effect in 2018. We're supposed to have rights to our territories. And yet there's all this mining in our territories. There's still mercury contamination. We're eating fish that are contaminated with mercury. So you're not, you know, fulfilling the promise that you made and you're not fulfilling the law that you set out. So I think there can be a really big gap between what uh, a government promises and what's on the surface and then what actually happens on the ground. I think, I think um, to, to their credit, and I don't, I don't want to be the guy who's, who's pro-government or pro-institutions. But this woman that's been brought on as the Minister of Mines, Irene Velez, very interesting background. She's studied philosophy, cultural studies. You know, she she's a, a thinker, and she's done lots of interesting work in the country, along with the vice president, who herself is Afro-Colombian, have tried to really engage groups that they feel have been mar marginalized for for years, not just the last four. So I think that's to their credit. I mean, what they come up with is will be interesting to see six months from now when they introduce a new mining code. But they've their consultations have been extremely broad. 
um, I think, what was it, a few thousand people they've consulted with. So we'll we'll see whether there's that continual gap between what the promise is and what, what the delivery is. You all both know that the EIS, or Environmental Impact Statement, in the United States, it's like a delay tactic for many things, mining, lithium in in Nevada now, um, it's, it's, they're going to start that mining in a couple months, if not already. Things that went on in, in in Standing Rock. So the EIS statements basically have no teeth. So when you talk about the new mining code that's on its way, do you, both of you or any of you have privy to what really that, what the mining code really entails besides just the banning, which is not really true anymore as it is that we can say it is in Mercury in 2018. Of course, they're looking for better conditions, as you wrote, um, across Colombia. Will it be too late kind of legislation? Because it seems like these governments are very volatile. You know, who's going to be the next one if they don't satisfy a certain elite group in Colombia? Yeah, I'll try to answer um, that to my knowledge and just say, uh, I think that Um, So there's, I guess, two different sides to the coin. One is that on the one hand, you had our miners like Carlos Artisanal extremely marginalized and poor, and they were being asked to to do things to formalize that were on the same level as what multinational companies are being asked that cost thousands of dollars to, for example, do things that, you know, to hire a consultant to be able to do an environmental impact study. So I think that one thing the government's trying to do is make that more attainable for and affordable for those miners. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, what they're doing for multinationals, um, I know one thing is that they are trying to, uh, as it stands now, you don't in Colombia, these multinationals have been able to explore land for minerals without any kind of um, environmental impact statement or plan. And it was only once they officially started mining and designated a place that they had to create a environmental impact assessment. So I know one thing the government's trying to do is to get those env- the environmental plans more, be more broad and include the whole process. So multinationals can't have to be more responsible for their activities across more of the exploration process. Charlie, maybe you... It's just, again, what I was saying before about, you know, the um, the criminal syndicates are are very powerful in, in so many Latin American and, and Latin American countries and in Brazil that and, and I like what Colombia is doing. What what's what's happening in Brazil is a little different because they're focusing on these problem areas like what happened with the Yanomami in the north in Hawaii and Amazonas. But they're neglecting other areas like Pará Pará, and other states where the problem is still enduring. And the problem is the enforcement mechanisms. Mm. You can't oversee this much territory, Mm. not only in Brazil and Colombia, Venezuela. I mean, Venezuela is kind of a whole nother situation where it's kind of at the, at the phase where Colombia and Brazil were, it's just impossible to oversee and to really enforce. So they're, they're going in and they're, you know, we, we, we wrote about the, 
the dredges, the explosion of dredges, the crippling of, of some of the infrastructure that is both in Colombia and Brazil in order to stop this illegal gold mining. But again, it's just such big territory and the corrupt elements um, know how to get around. You might stop them for a while, but they're going to reappear and they're just going to shift their location. And unfortunately, it's the indigenous whose land many of these illegal actions are taking place on that are, are the ones that suffer the most by intimidation, abuse, you know, all kinds of things. When I was in, just uh, just a last little anecdote, when I was in Hoima trying to investigate a little bit of the situation of the Yanomami up near Pacaraima, which is near the Venezuelan border, I saw on bus stops out in the middle of nowhere, but little bus stops, anti-Indigenous statements scribbled, uh, now Indigenista, now Indigenista. And it's, it's this, this angry sentiment that was, that was propped up by Bolsonaro that somehow the Indigenous on the land are slowing progress. And that is something that is throughout Latin America. Wow. So this age-old demand for gold disease of course, we, we can say, we point fingers, but when it comes down to it, we can say, well, the practice needs to be cleaned up, mining techniques, anything that the government puts out because of the new mining laws coming out. We can say EIS statements. We went through all the channels to say that we're doing the proper thing. But yet, is it really about cleaner mining techniques? Do we need the gold? It seems like throughout from my experience of talking to you about Suriname and Brazil and Bolivia and Colombia, these standards aren't good enough because they're doing what they're doing to native peoples. The land, whether it's being cleared for cattle, is still, that's the first move is you clear the indigenous peoples out, then you clear the land, then next thing you know, it's open to devastation. Whose responsibility is that? when we can point at all the, the do's and don'ts, but when it comes down to it, to me as an indigenous person, it's still that view from the shore, Charlie and Charles. It's still the view from the shore that I, I'm offering here. So maybe changing the language, the view from the ships made Potosi the biggest mining source of silver in the world. Yeah, and I think that's in Bolivia and Authors have written about it. What I'm saying is, why do we make this? We don't hear about it until it's done. Like what happened here, 98.5% of Native people in North America were wiped out, right? And so, but we only talked to the 2.5% left or 1.5% left or something like this. And that's a small fraction of the story. Here we have a chance through reports like you're doing the influx of America, Americans or the United States citizens to go down there and yet gentrify. Because to me, all these mechanical mining techniques has thought to it. We gentrify the land, whether it's on a right or left. So where's the hope that people look for that this is going to stop until, until, until there's nothing to hope for? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I'm glad you said all that and puts put the this issue in a 
broader perspective about what are we, uh, what's going on here. And I don't have an easy answer, but I, I think that do we need gold? I mean, do we need to wear gold? Do we need to, uh, do people need to be investing in gold as a hedge against uh, inflation, for example, when um, it's causing all these uh, harmful impacts in communities? I mean, I I would just say that I think that from for me, the reason that I became uh, inspired to work on this issue and to spread awareness about this issue is because this is not an you know, something that's going on in some faraway place. This is something that uh, is having real effects in those places, but it is really, in my view at least, the root of it is coming from a demand in um, my own country. So uh, if we have, you know, incentives and and demands in place where people are uh, in the United States are really fueling gold mining, on a really large scale and fueling these impacts in, in Amazon countries and across the world. People really need to know about that and need to reflect on impacts of consumer choices. So to me, this is a really interconnected issue and it's not something that's we can in the United States just sort of wash our hands up and say this is going on somewhere else. And, you know, there's this government trying to do this about it. To me, it's really a, an interconnected problem. Charles. Uh, I just wanted to say also that there's a lot of discussion. It was just a New Yorker piece um, about indigeneity. And one of the things that gets left out of these historical discussions, I think, is the role that indigenous play in preserving the land and protecting the land. And this insatiable desire for gold is another sort of invasion. Um, Whether you co-opt indigenous interests or not, it's still an invasion. And it turns these landscapes into awful dystopic uh, images of of destruction and and really sad to see with little consistent sense of, of the reforesting that needs to be done. So, yeah, there's somehow if consumers, as Charlie was saying, were more aware in our country and in other countries of the um, the impacts on the ground to people, to environments, that would really potentially change the tide. It's not been a good tide at all. Um, just to go on out here, a small floating thought I've had is that it's people like you and others that I know that I've talked to over the years recently there's a certain amount of the human species awakening so much to know that we are all caught up in this colonial coma that we need to wake up from. And we work out of that colonial coma that constantly wants to put us back to sleep. And as you say, we don't want to put it on the table. It's the elephant in the room, but it's a deception even in our own language to say that we're not part of this because we separate ourselves by saying we, I instead of we. And I think that that is not just basically personal sovereignty. What we're looking for is somebody who really can speak, walk the talk. And I'd like to thank both of you. Any final words? I, I just want to say it's always a pleasure to be on this show. I should probably mention that both of us 
work with Amazon Aid Foundation as consultants through whom, you know, we are able to write these articles for MangaPay. Um, yeah, I, ditto. And I really appreciate being on the show and thinking about this in a broader way. So thank you so much for having both of us. All right, Charlie Espinoza and Charles Lang, thank you so much for being here on First Voices Radio. Good to see you both. Nice to see you. Correspondent Ann Kayla Kelly updates us about Thacker Pass, which First Voices Radio has been following closely since January 2021. She talks with activists. Lawyer Will Falk, who, with activist photographer Max Wilbert, started an occupation at Thacker Pass on January 15th, 2021, to stop construction of a proposed lithium mine in Thacker Pass, Nevada, known as Pihi Maha in the Paiute language. A new lawsuit was filed in federal district court on February 16th by three nations, Reno Sparks Indian Colony, Burns Paiute Tribe, and Summit Lake Paiute Tribe. This is a new lawsuit against the U.S. federal government over Lithium Nevada Corporation's planned Thacker Pass lithium mine, the latest move in what has become a two-year struggle over mining, greenwashing, and sacred lands in northern Nevada. And thank you, Kayla Kelly. Aloha, Will, and welcome to First Voices Radio. Aloha, Kayla. Thanks for having me be here. Will, can you tell us about the ruling recently in federal court that led to this new lawsuit? Yeah. Um, so in in the original lawsuit, there were um, there was a, a rancher who who sued the government for issuing the permit for the Thacker Pass project. There was four uh, regional environmental groups, and then there were two uh, Indian tribes. Uh, one um, being the Reno Sparks Indian Colony, who I represented, and another, the Burns Paiute Tribe, who I did not represent. And essentially, uh, all of us uh, lost all of our arguments except for one, um, and that argument was primarily advanced by the environmental plaintiffs. But uh, I guess the, in a nutshell, what the ruling means is that uh, the whole project can move forward except for um, one, one small uh, aspect of the project, um, there is this uh, land that the corporation wants to bury under waste rock, and the uh, Bureau of Land Management um, is not supposed to allow them to dump their waste there unless the corporation can prove that there is a valuable mineral underneath the land that they want to bury under the waste rock. So unless the corporation can prove that they have a valid uh, mineral claim under that uh, waste rock. Uh, so as long what the judge ordered was um, the rest of the project can go forward. And as soon as uh, the Bureau of Land Management can verify that the corporation does indeed have valid mineral claims underneath the waste rock pile, uh, then they can start to bury that land under the waste rock. Because the project was uh, fast-tracked and the government worked so quickly to issue the permit, uh, it, it uh, obviously cut a lot of corners, and one of the corners that it cut was tribal consultation. 
Um, so it did not actually have any interaction with uh, tribes over this project. Um, there's probably around 20 to 25 regional tribes who descend from people who would have routinely uh, lived in or moved through Thacker Pass. And so in the last couple of years, the, the agent, the Bureau of Land Management has been trying to um, catch up with the consultation that it should have given the tribes before issuing the permit. And while doing that, um, they've made a lot of mistakes and from our, from my client's perspective, um, violated several laws. Um, so we have, we have filed this new lawsuit. Based well, well, hold on a second before we talk about the new lawsuit. Okay. Since it was fast tracked and the tribes weren't consulted, did the judge order them to go back and consult? No. Cause that's uh, actually part of the federal law is that they have to consult. Am I wrong about that? Well, um, you're not wrong, except for uh, the, the government agencies like the Bureau of Land Management uh, have a really wishy-washy definition of consultation. And um, judges, the law says that judges, for the most part, are supposed to grant um, deference to these administrative agencies um, so uh, what judges tend to do is they allow the very barest minimum of, of things like consultation. And then, of course, if, if certain parties aren't, don't actually sue over this, um, then a judge won't look to see, say, um, one of the tribes that was uh, I originally identified as needing consultation in this case um, and, and a tribe that is now one of my clients, the Summit Lake Paiute tribe. Um, the Summit Lake Paiute tribe did not was not a part of the original lawsuit. Um, so when we wanted to offer uh, letters that the Summit Lake Paiute tribe wrote to the Bureau of Land Management saying you never consulted with us, mm-hmm. Um, the judge said, well, the Summit Lake Paiute tribe is not a part of this case right now, so I'm not going to let you bring those those letters, and I'm not going to consider the fact that those letters exist. Um, so in a way, doesn't the judge rule, you know, saying that basically push them to have to file a lawsuit by saying, yeah. she's sort of saying you'd sort of have to sue in order for that to be relevant? Is that? Yes. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, one of the one of the aspects judges, you know, they get, they jealously guard their schedule and it, getting a lawsuit together is, is normally a time intensive and resource intensive. And a lot of times it costs a lot of money to file a lawsuit. Um, so forcing, uh, tribes to file a lawsuit before a judge will consider aspects of a case like this, um, is, is sort of a deterrent, um, and, and sort of, a. I, I doubt the judge would say an intentional deterrent, but the way that the law is designed, it, it operates as a deterrent. I see. Okay. So tell us about who are these three tribes and what is this, the significance of this new lawsuit that you folks have filed? Yeah, the new lawsuit um, is being brought by uh, three tribes, um, the Reno Sparks Indian Colony and the Summit Lake Paiute Tribe, who I represent. 
And then the Burns Paiute tribe, um, who has has their own lawyer, um, but we've all joined forces to file this new lawsuit. And most of the arguments made in this new lawsuit deal with things that that the Bureau of Land Management have done since issuing the permit. Uh, one of the one of the things that has happened is once the tribes actually were notified about the project and and had a chance to understand what the project was, where it would be. Um, they informed the Bureau of Land Management of two massacre sites in the project area and insisted that uh, the government recognize the the legal term for this is recognized that uh, this is the tribe's traditional cultural property um, and that they're entitled to what's called a post review discovery process. So basically consultation, they're entitled to consultation even though the permit has been issued, but construction has not started. So the agency should have consulted with the tribes about um, basically offered them the consultation that they they didn't get before the permit was issued. BLM did, in fact, say they were going to do that um, and then proceeded to ignore the tribe's letters, comments, requests for information about the project area, about you know, how to maybe avoid uh, destroying certain aspects of Thacker Pass. Um, and so this new lawsuit deals uh, mostly with stuff that has happened after uh, January 15th, 2021, when the Thacker Pass uh, permit was was issued, um, as opposed to the first lawsuit, was, which dealt with stuff that happened before January 15th, 2021. I see. Right. OK, I understand. So what have they actually done out there at this point? Lithium, um, Nevada, it's Lithium Nevada is the name of the corporation, right? That's yes. Lithium Nevada. They have, uh, well, the, the first, uh, maybe worst thing they've done is, is they have already completed, um, an initial round of their archaeological excavations. So, you know, uh, this probably will be no surprise to native listeners, but to non-native listeners, especially in a place like Nevada, there's, there's virtually no, um, land that is not covered in the artifacts of, of the people who have lived there forever. Thacker Pass is no exception. There was um, something like over a thousand uh, cultural resource sites, which are um, defined as, I believe, having 20 or more artifacts within the area, within a certain area. So Thacker Pass is literally covered with... Um, ah artifacts that have been created by um, Paiute people and their ancestors, uh, Western Shoshone people and their ancestors, um, and probably other uh, um, nations as well. Um, this is, so this includes burial sites, I'm assuming. We, um, yes, uh, a Paiute tradition is to uh, leave the dead in um, caves or stone outcroppings um, or bury them um, not underground, but on the ground with stones on top of them. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the northern, uh, a big part of the Thacker Pass lithium mine project area encompasses a lot of caves and stone outcroppings um, that would have traditionally been used to to uh, place the dead in. So it's we think it's very likely that um, those, those places are going to be disturbed. At the same time, there were 
Um, at least 31 Paiute people massacred in Thacker Pass on September 12, 1865. The soldiers said that they did not um, make a search through the through the uh, sagebrush. They said we didn't make a search through the sage to actually count how many people we killed. Um, so we think it's highly likely that those that most of the people killed in that massacre were just left there. And contemporary Paiute people say that. Um, it's, um, it's unlikely that, that people would have wanted to go back to that massacre site one, just for the, um, the sheer psychological trauma of seeing your relatives, um, rotting bodies, but also, uh, the cavalry would be expecting something like that. So they would watch over those sites and round up any people that came to, um, kind of clean things up. Um, but then, um, there were also would be certain religious strictures about how to um, how to pray for those people. And that would not have been possible with with the cavalry monitoring things. So, yes, we, we think that um, there the final resting places of Paiute people who were murdered by the American government will be destroyed by this this lithium mine. What is it that you are asking for in the lawsuit? What are the tribes trying to accomplish? The the biggest thing that is possible for us to accomplish is what's called a vacature of the um, of the permit. Or uh, there's a collection of permits that that we've we recently discovered that Lithium Nevada actually possesses stuff we didn't know about until this past fall. Um, so we're actually going to be asking for the judge to vacate all those permits. And, and vacature means that it's like the permit wasn't issued. But it's it's really important that people understand that there is no mechanism in American law for us to go into a court and say, you must, you know, you must not let this mine happen. You must not let this place be disturbed. All we can do is force um, an undoing of the current permits. Um, but what that means practically is that the corporation and the government will just correct the mistakes that they made in issuing the permit the first time um, so that they'll get the permit again. And, you know, it'll be a lot harder to challenge them the second time when there's a federal judge pointing out problems with their permit um, application that they can just simply fix and and be ready to go. I've seen that happen a lot of, a lot here in Hawaii, where it's we're really just talking about legal technicalities. Is all we're you're able to do is call them out on a technicality. Yes. Basically, you can't really stop them in the courts. So that leads me to another question: What kind of pressure can be brought to bear? you know, locally or just on the federal level, whether it's with the Department of Interior's, you know, Deb Holland, who I would hope would be on the side of the tribes because she's the first Native American to run that department. And I'm just wondering, like, what it, what what kind of pressure can be brought? Is it political? I mean, at some point, the legal doesn't work. So what's, you know, what's the strategy? Or can you share that with us? Yeah, uh, I think broadly, Um yeah, it's really important for everybody to understand that in campaigns like these, eventually the lawsuits and the legal tactics exhaust themselves. And there's, um, you know, we we try every single thing we can. And um, while those things may delay projects, there will come a certain point where we have no uh, legal ability to delay the projects. Um, one of the political pressure points here. Um, 
uh, it's important to understand that Deb Holland has been like pointedly ignoring us on this issue. You know, the Biden administration, one of their key platform things is is this whole so-called uh, green energy revolution, um, which really just means destroying uh, what's left of the land for new technologies. But we can't we haven't <laughs> we haven't gotten uh, Miss Holland to uh, uh, respond to us, acknowledge us. Um, we have now, in fact, uh, we named her as the first party in our lawsuit. So the lawsuit actually is called Reno Sparks Indian Colony versus Deb Holland. Um, so we are uh, hoping to get her attention. Um, you know, there. I guess there are things, one of the things that would be really hard to achieve but is theoretically possible is if we could get uh, someone like Deb Holland to agree to just sort of place a, a full pause on any sort of um, mining activity in Thacker Pass while uh, Congress investigates designating Thacker Pass as something like a, a national historic landmark. Um, there is the Sand Creek Massacre in Colorado is a place that has gained this high of a designation. Um, but I would caution people to understand that it took 20 years for um, Sand Creek to go through that whole process to be protected. Um, what was so the threat to Sand Creek at that time? Well, you know what? I, it, it, there might not have actually even been a threat. There was just mm -hmm. this realization that most of the Sand Creek Massacre was on public land. Uh, that's significant because in the United States, Congress has designated the highest and best use of public land to be mining, and that includes Native American um, traditional or, or cultural or spiritual concerns. So um, if a tribe says this is the most sacred place in the world, uh, and, a, uh, and it's on public land and a mining corporation locates valuable minerals, the law says that they have to give the permit to the corporation to destroy the place. Um, so I think what happened with Sand Creek is they realized that as long as Sand Creek was on public land, the massacre site was on public land, it would be in danger of mining claims. And so they initiated a process to um, get the government to essentially withdraw the Sand Creek Massacre site from the public lands designation um, in order to to more permanently protect uh, Sand Creek. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's really a worthy uh, goal for Thacker Pass. I think it should be considered doable and it might actually be the thing, the direction everything ends up in if protests indeed have to take place, because I actually think this could turn into a something like a Standing Rock protest if the government is going to consistently side with the mining industry. I listened in on the Facebook live conversation that you did with Max Wilbert, who's the original. <laughs> He's the leader, really. He's the first guy that was out there on this with you. And one of you, I don't know if it was you or him, but one of you said that Thacker Pass is seen as like a national security issue. And so that gives the government the motivation to just ignore what the, the Native people need in terms of their protections. Is that true? Did I hear that right? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, the corporation, Lithium Nevada, one of the things that, you know, they jump up and down saying in court is, you know, being able to access uh, a domestic supply of uh, lithium uh, is, you know, makes us less reliant, us, <laughs> um, makes the United States less 
reliant on, say, China or foreign sources of lithium. Of course, this is this is an argument that's been made since Europeans arrived on this continent um, that, you know, just this once we're going to have to destroy more native land um, because the empire needs it. And of course, you know, 500 years of just this once, there's hardly anything left. Yeah, that's the tragedy. You know, that's that's colonization. It's never stopped. I think most people when people talk about decolonization or or post-colonization, rather, I, I always shake my head. Like, why do they why do they say that? Who are they talking about? Because they're not, not talking about anybody I know. <laughs> they're talking about any native people I know. Because the right. colonial project is an extraction project. It's about Absolutely. going in and erasing the first people of the place, paving over them and extracting whatever it is, like you said, the empire wants it. Yeah. And I mean, it's important. Like, one of the things that really hits me about this whole thing is <laughs> so in, in the, the, the Paiutes who were massacred in 1865 in, in Thacker Pass were massacred um, as part of what was called the Snake War. Um, and the Snake War, which uh, historians have called the the bloodiest, uh, you know, conflict with Native Americans um, uh, west of the Mississippi River, um, it was primarily fought as um, Native American traditional food sources have been destroyed by primarily mining and ranching. <laughs> Um, and so these these people were resisting the expansion of mining on their land, and they were murdered for it. And um, now, uh, you know, 160 years later, things have so thoroughly not changed um, that you have uh, the interests of the mining uh, industry coming in to destroy the evidence that this massacre even happened. So, yeah, the post post colonization, um, it's, you know, it's it's. Maybe it's not people getting massacred like in 1865, though that is happening in a lot of places. Um, but one of the reasons why people aren't getting massacred in, in 2023 is because they already did the massacring back in 1865. And people know what people know what happens when you stand up to projects like this. Yeah. And, you know, we'd all like not to have to find out what it's going to be like if we all have to go out there and protest and stand there with with the tribes and and with you and Max and any other of the activists who had the courage to show up for this beautiful place. I've never been there, but just the images I've seen are just absolutely stunning. Will, can you tell people where they can go for more information about this uh, struggle to protect Thacker Pass? Yeah, the first place would be uh, protectthackerpass.org. Thacker is T-H-A-C-K-E-R. And another place would be the Reno Sparks Indian Colonies uh, website, um, uh, which I believe is just rsic.org. But yeah, those are two places where you can find updates and, and understand what's going on. Will Falk, author, lawyer, all around warrior from Mother Earth. You know, I want to Thank you so much for coming on First Voices Radio today to to discuss uh, this new lawsuit. And we look forward to updates in the near future. Yeah, thank you very much for having me and and giving Thacker Pass a a platform. Keala Kelly, Pilamaya Yellow. And to Will Falk, thank you. Keala Kelly comes all the way from Hawaii as one of our lead correspondents. And I want to thank her once again 
Anagopta Nankapikihe, Klamia Yapi. Makawa Zi Wogalake Ehanta Naya Anagopta Yo. Anawicha Gopta Anagopta Wichamake. Tokshake Wachiankikte. And I wanted to thank all of you for joining us here at First Forces Radio. Thank you for listening. Thank you all for listening. When a grandfather or grandmother speaks, listen to him or her carefully. And I listened to them when I was young, and I sat listening to them while I was young. And I will see you again eventually, but surely. My name is Teokasin Ghost Horse. Stood still on a highway I saw a woman By the side of the road With a face that I knew like my own Reflected in my window Well, she walked up to my quarter light And she bent down real slow A fearful pressure Paralyzed me In my shadows She said, son What are you doing here? My fear for you has turned me In my grave I said, Mama, I come to the valley of the rich Myself to sell She said, Son, this is the road to hell
This is the road. 